a dream that one day we shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields and in the streets, we shall fight in the hills, we shall never surrender. The Historian's Magazine Podcast. <laughs> Hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine podcast, the podcast where we bring history to you in an accessible way from some of the world's most exciting historians. The Historian's Magazine podcast is produced and presented by Past and Present Media, the home of accessible history. Now it's at this point of the podcast where I like to talk about and read out some of our five-star reviews. So this one is from Nathan W45 on Apple Podcasts and Nathan says, a fact a minute, Just listened to Series 2, Episode 1, super informative and great to learn from those so passionate about history. So thank you very much for that review, Nathan. If you guys want to feature in our five-star review section of the podcast, make sure you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast site and we'll make sure we read them out in one of our episodes. Now, before we get into the episode, just a few messages from some of our supporters. Now, I know you're fascinated by history because you are listening to the Historian's Magazine podcast. But are you interested in the history of art and culture? Do you want to learn more about works of art, famous artists, or exciting archaeological discoveries? If you do, do you want to learn about it through free quality art history content? If that is something that appeals to you, look no further than Accessible Art History, the podcast. This is a weekly podcast where it explores all of these topics and so much more in such an accessible and entertaining way. The goal of this podcast and accessible art history is to provide history, knowledge, content and fun whilst learning. Now you can listen to this podcast and download it through any major podcast player, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify or whatever you listen to your podcast on. So that is Accessible Art History, the podcast. Now here at the Historian's Magazine, we love hearing and learning about history that isn't often touched upon in history textbooks or in traditional history media. And one place that we love to go and learn about this kind of history is the Past podcast with Veronica Fortune. Now Past is the podcast about those who would never rule. So if you've ever been curious about why women couldn't inherit the throne of France or how the Hundred Years' War started, this is the show for you. Now, Veronica covers the almost kings and queens of history and the reasons why they would never rule, which is an amazing idea, and I really think you're going to enjoy it. So that is The Past Podcast, P-A-S-S-E-D, The Past Podcast. So hello and welcome to the Historian's Magazine podcast. Today we are speaking to historian and author Abigail Williams. Abby is a feature author in the Motorsport edition of the magazine and she's got a fantastic article in there that I know you're going to enjoy. And today we are going to break down that article and some of the interesting facets of it with Abby. So how are you doing, Abby? Hey, I'm great. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. It's really exciting. This is my first podcast feature ever. So, you know, it's great to be here. Oh, it's great to do your first podcast with you. And I, I must say, I really, really enjoyed your article. I think it's a great piece and I think everyone's going to enjoy it. Oh, thank you so much. I'm so glad that you enjoy it because I don't really come from like a motorsport background. So it's really nice to have enthusiasts like the article, but also engage with the article as well, because that was what I wanted the most from it. 
No, you, you definitely fooled me and making me think that you were an expert in this because you know you've covered so many different pieces and I'm really looking forward to getting into, into them today. But the first point that I want to talk about in your article is obviously, you know, your article looking at the evolution of F1 cars is it, quite a it's quite a niche topic, but an interesting yeah. one. So I want to ask what's the inspiration behind that article? It's actually a really funny story because it all came from my brother. Um, it's actually his 16th birthday today. So it's kind of uh, all serendipitous that we're talking about this today. So as a staff writer for the Historians magazine, we get to see and pick and choose our topics well ahead, well in advance. So when I saw that motorsports had actually come up, I was a little bit nervous. As I have previously said, I'm not a motorsport historian by any stretch of the imagination. I'm a medievalist at push. Motorsports wasn't even a medieval idea at the time. So, you know, obviously not really knowing, not knowing where to begin. I sent a message to my brother because he and like some of my very good friends are very into Formula One. Um, I don't even know what car I passed my driving test in, if that sums up how little I know about cars. And I know that he's so interested in Formula One for his after day. I bought him tickets to go see the Formula One. So I knew he knew about it. And he was like, do you know what? That's a really interesting question. Why don't you do the evolution of F1? Because the 2018 um, decisions by the FIA were so controversial. It would be really interesting to see how we got to that controversial decision, which is discussed in my article, if you want to know about that. Um, but yeah, so essentially a text to my brother at like five in the morning, me panicking, going, what do I write about was the conception of this very, very interesting article. Well, happy birthday to your brother as well. <laughs> and I think he's made a good decision there in, in telling you to do that because, you know, it's a really interesting aspect of Formula One. And, you know, one way that you look at it or the main way that you look at it is, is through the case study of Ferrari. You know, everyone knows Ferrari is this great historic brand that's been in F1 pretty much since the beginning. So why did you choose Ferrari as your case study for this article? That was also because of my brother. Um, when he was younger, he was obsessed with Ferrari. And where we grew up, like very, like maybe a 10 minute walk from our house, there was a Ferrari cafe. Everything in there was Ferrari mad. It was insane. It was absolutely insane. And I'm kind of ashamed to say that I didn't know any other car or brand or team that raced in Formula One. So, um, well, that was before I started doing the article and the research for the article. Now I'm very well versed in all the different teams. But at the time, Ferrari seemed like the obvious choice. My brother had been the inspiration behind the article. And F Ferrari is such an iconic and well-known brand that it, not just in the Formula One world, but in all assets of motor industries, that it seemed like a really fun way to like view the evolution of F1 because it's been in it the entire time and it's so well known today. And I must say, you know, every time someone draws a car as a kid growing up, it's always red. Yeah, um, so, yeah. pony and red. It's even when I didn't understand what it was, you could see it everywhere. It's so identifiable. So I, th I think, you know, going with Ferrari there is it's something that everyone's going to identify with and everyone's going to understand and know, which is, you know, really relatable aspect. So, 
you know, getting into F1 and getting into the tactical, tactical, technical evolutions, even that you talk about in your article. What were the early F1 cars like then? Have you seen them? Have you Googled images of the early F1 cars? They look like cigars on wheels, but obviously bright red because it's Ferrari. And of course, it wouldn't be a Ferrari car if it wasn't bright red. Um, but they don't look anything like the cars that grace the, um, the world stage today. And they are nowhere near as safe which is a big thing when we look at the evolution of F1, like the safety measures that are introduced change the game entirely. Um, the early Formula One cars didn't have seatbelts. They didn't have helmets. Well, helmets weren't introduced until 1952. Um, and for the front engine cars that were popular at the inception of the Formula One, drivers would be actually sat saddling um, the tunnel that housed the prop shaft which essentially, and I didn't know this, and it's very scary to think about, is a solid rotating metal shaft that span up to a thousand revs per minute between the driver's legs. Can you imagine taking a sharp corner or a corner very quickly and having to avoid hitting the, that shaft? Honestly, the Formula One cars at the beginning were quite scary. <laughs> I mean, I certainly wouldn't want uh, a spinning cam sh uh, camshaft in between my legs. I think that's quite a, a terrifying ordeal. So, <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't envy any of those early greats. Uh, no, I, I really, I really like the point that you're talking about safety because I think a lot of us take for granted today the safety in Formula One. You know, we haven't had a death in quite a few years now. We, yeah. you know, we also take for safety some of the take for granted some of the safety features in our cars today. So what do you think was like the first major technical evolution or te major safety evolution in F1? It, it kind of sounds crazy, but the fact that the original cars didn't include a seatbelt feels like a pretty major oversight with regards to safety. They weren't man made mandatory until the late 50s, early 60s. But I don't think that's the main safe, the first major safety innovation i actually think that was the introduction of fire resistant racing suits that became mandatory in 1975 um and before the 60s when just generic like just normal racing suits were introduced um racing drivers could literally wear anything they could wear short sleeve t-shirts they could wear anything that they felt comfortable in and kept them cool um but can you imagine if you were in an accident and you were basically becoming shredded against the racing track and having nothing on your skin is not an effective protective feature so I definitely say although it feels quite basic um the first major evolution in safety for the F1 is fire resistant racing suits um because it definitely was a first step towards a fire a safety first mentality within the sport and it must have saved so many lives. You know, you can think back to a couple of years ago with Roman Grosjean in, in Bahrain with that car setting on fire. So, yeah, it's it's definitely saved quite a few lives. So I think that's a great safety evolution there. Uh, what about the first major technical evolution then? Because F1's not just a race to be the most safe. It's the race to be the most technically advanced car as well. That's a very tricky question to answer because it depends with every car and every car's design team. Um, evolution in the F1, like you've said, it's not, we're not just looking for the safest car and evolution isn't linear either. Um, you could say that Cooper 
had the first major technical evolution by switching from a front engine to a mid or rear engine car, as this was a drastic change that all teams then adopted. It was an evolution sparked by other people's design efforts. Um, and you can see that it was adopted very quickly because the last car, front engine car to win an F1 race was the Ferrari 246 Dino in the 60s. But I would say a more generic and more across the board major technical evolution or technical change made to the F1 is the understanding of aerodynamics. Because everything that, all of the changes that grace the world stage with the cars, whether it be from Cooper to McLaren to Alfa Romeo to Ferrari, they are all based on the understanding of aerodynamics. They're all based at making the car lighter, um, reduce the drag, make the grip on the surface better so that they can reach higher speeds so the racing becomes more dramatic and they can like be competitive and win. Um, so I definitely say this technical understanding is a constant driving force for evolution within for Formula One. Um, so yeah, I would definitely say that it would be aerodynamics being the first major technical advance in evolution in F1. I like that because, you know, aerodynamics, like you just said, it governs everything Formula One teams do, you know, from the little winglets on the cars to how big the wings are and so on. It's it's just mind-boggling how much work they need to do for that. But one other body that really, really plays a massive role in governing Formula One is the FIA. Uh, you know, that body that oversees uh, motorsport across the world. And in the 1980s, the FIA decided to get involved and mandate some changes to Formula One cars. What changes did they mandate then? Yeah. So essentially, at the end of the 70s, the understanding of aerodynamics and subsequently ground effect led cars to having skirts or vertical plants attached to the bottom of the car's side pod that formed a seal to create um, ground effect. This seal sucked the car to the track, causing cars to reach record speeds, but also caused major record um, gaining injury and death because drivers couldn't control such high speeds when taking corners effectively. So by the 80s, the FIA had mandated that the minimum ride height must be at least 60 millimeters to reduce ground effect and curb the high cornering speeds. And this is something that we've not even seen reintroduced ever until 2020. So you can see that it's been a massive thing that the FIA introduced for safety. Yeah, and and that period there, you know, you talk about you talk about deaths. There were so many deaths and so many great drivers in that in that period died. And I think you know, the FIA getting involved kind of shows the the sport putting safety uh, ahead of a major technical evolution, which is quite interesting, really. But moving from these these fast cars of the eighties with their record breaking speeds, I want to fast forward into the movement of the twenty first century. You know, what what changes were being made to cars in the twenty first century then? That's a loaded question if I've ever heard one, because what changes weren't made? Um, the cars of the 21st century are nothing akin to the cars of the 50s or 60s. Um, no longer do the drivers have to rely on their own knowledge of what the car's engine should sound like to work out whether the car needs to be in the pits because it's not performing at its optimal. Um, the, the cars now have shift lights, a paddle shift, they have head and neck support devices to reduce the g-force inflicted upon the driver, 
Um, they have a, an electronic clutch, electronic throttle, electronic transmission. Um, they have dials and lights to warn when something is not performing at its optimal and kinetic energy recovery systems, telemetry systems. The cars of today are entirely kitted out to allow for the best race possible and to make sure the driver knows exactly what's going on with their car at all times. So there have been some massive changes made and it would we would be here all day if we were to go through all of the changes made within the 21st century up until now, because even between the 2022 season and 2023 season, so many changes have been made. What, what, I'm, what I'm hearing then is then that a lot of the changes in that period are not so technical or, or safety feature driven. They're more technological changes. Um, and, you know, the cars of the late noughties and 2010s, as you said, took a massive step forward. You know, you have those lights and you have cars, uh, kinetic energy and so on. I just want to take a little bit of a, a deeper step, really, into some of those changes um, and the kind of the effect that they have. So great question, because obviously the changes made to F1 isn't just safety. It's not just about the technical car, the chassis it uses, the cockpit. It's about the race itself. It's about how the cars drive. And so some of the features such as the CURS, the kinetic energy recovery system and the DRS, the drag recovery, all that sort of stuff, they are they have been designed to make overtaking uh, more exciting, more dramatic. They've been designed to actually make the cars do something that it hadn't been able to do before. Um, so essentially, the race becomes more entertaining, faster, and people are, are more engaged. Certainly from my experience of watching F1, you know, when that when that rear wing opens, you just know that, you know, either Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc are, are on some devastating attack on, you know, whatever poor souls in front of them. So it definitely has, you know, made the racing more exciting, from my opinion anyway, as a massive fan of the sport. There was also huge safety innovations, huge, huge safety innovations in this period. You know, quickly, you know, what what's one of these major changes and how, whose lives were saved from these new devices? Absolutely. Um, and no other safety device is more prominent and has been more effective at saving lives than the 2018 Halo. Um, the Halo, controversial as sin in its debut in 2018, with both fans and drivers being sceptical about its not only its ability to save lives and be a protective measure, but also because a lot of Formula One purists didn't like that it took away from the open cockpit nature and DNA of Formula One single-seater racing. However, we can say without a shadow of a doubt, it does not take away from Formula One. It makes Formula One so much more exciting because you know that your drivers are safe. And it has saved so many lives. It cannot be, you cannot, you cannot argue that. Um, you've got drivers such as Leclerc, who drove for Alfa Romeo in 2018, when he was struck by Fernando Alonso for driving for McLaren. Alonso's front wheel impacted Leclerc's halo as the cars collided. There is no way that he would have survived if there was no halo there to prevent that impact on his helmet. Um, again, Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen in 2021, the, ham the halo saved Hamilton's life. Verstappen's wheel managed to create impact with Hamilton's helmet despite the halo but if there was no halo there 
that impact would have been tenfold. Hamilton would not have survived that. And I think the one that everyone remembers um, in his fiery crash is Romain Grosjean, um, who went headfirst into the barriers. The halo actually cut through the barriers, meaning that his head and helmet could pass through safely. Without that halo, he would have had brain injury and life-threatening illness injuries that would have meant that he would not have even been able to get out of the car. So if he hadn't have died on impact, he would have been burnt alive because that crash was a fiery inferno. It was awful. So you cannot deny that the halo has worked and it is a formidable piece of safety safety prevention and safety protection in F1. Yeah, I, t- I totally agree with you, really. It has made F1 more exciting because, you know, those those crashes, having watched them when uh, when watching the races, I, with that Charles Leclerc crash, I was like, oh my God, what's happened? And seeing that how safe he was because of that halo really changed my opinion on it. Um, and, you know, feeling more confident, you know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, watching F1, I would have thought, oh, Romain Grosjean's gone. Um, but owing to the halo and those technical inv- innovations, you know, thank God he was he was completely fine. So you know, highlighting those changes is is such a massive evolution in F1. But we also had a massive evolution a couple of years ago with the FIA mandating some more changes to F1 cars. So I just want to look at the current generation of cars and and, and ask and ask you really how much change has occurred with how quickly technology changes from year to year. It's changed a lot. But I think one of my favorite things that has changed in the last couple of years is the changes to the cars for competitiveness. No longer is it just about winning like the championship or the constructors camp championship. It's about the race itself, engaging fans, making sure that everyone is enjoying the sport. And one of the things that has changed to make that happen, for example, is in 2022, Ferraris, the F-175, used things such as flick-ups, badge boards, splitters, a front wing def- dependency to prevent the downforce from being generated underneath the car. That actually reduces the amount of dirty air being produced by the car. And you wouldn't think, oh, why do we need to reduce dirty air? That seems like a, a random thing. Why would anyone spend their time to create change for this? But it makes dramatic changes to the sport, the competitiveness, to the rivalries between teams, because now you can actually get behind cars. You can become alongside. You can inch closer and closer without having your vision obscured so that the race becomes a lot more intense. And these changes from competitiveness, I think, are only going to increase as the year goes on, because as the years stretch into decades, because we have the safety to back it up. We have the technical innovation to actually be able to be like, hey, let's make this more exciting, but in a safe way. Yeah, I think I think I definitely agree. I think the current cars are incredibly safe, but some of the driving has been, you know, minus Max Verstappen and his ruthless uh, desire to win. You know, the racing much further down the field has been incredibly close. It's been really exciting. So I think it's definitely a you know, fantastic change that you just highlighted there. Now, this article is not only about the evolution of F1, it's also about some of the changes that you as the author has highlighted. What has been your favourite change that you you have wrote about? I think I have my favourite one 
being the halo 1000% because not only does it make such a big impact in protecting its drivers, but it is the embodiment of a safety first culture that the sport has desperately needed from its inception. I think the biggest change, my favorite change is the change of the mentality from, oh, Formula One, yeah, you're going to die. It, you're going to experience great injury to something that has become more of a driver first, safety first mentality of, yes, we want this to be exciting, but that does not need to become to come at the, the downfall of our drivers. Um, but I think one of my favorite like technical changes is the way that the um, seat of the drivers is now within the car, in within the tub, rather than being sat on top of the tub because it just feels more comfortable for the drivers and it's more exciting to watch. Yeah, uh, I definitely agree that, you know, the moving away from driver deaths and injuries being part and parcel of the sport to now being the exception and something that we don't want to have is it has been a massive change and changes the way that a lot of drivers and I think fans enjoy the sport as well. And I really couldn't imagine sitting on top of some of those terrifying cars from the early F1s, just sitting on top of everything exposed. Um, so I'm probably too big to sit inside an F1 car now, but I think it's I think it's probably exciting to to be within the car now. Of course, no, one thousand percent. I don't know if I would have ever wanted to step foot into one of those early F1 cars if I had like a family member being like, "Oh, I'm going to go go karting." Oh no, absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a perfect time to take our ad break now. So we'll take an ad break with some messages from our supporters and we'll be back with some listener and fan questions for Abby. Now, obviously, you love historical content because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast. But if you need some more historical content in your life or if you're a history writer or budding history writer looking to start your historical content creator journey, then I have the perfect place for you. And that is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog, as they're known on Instagram. And this is the perfect place for creative people to find a hub for historical writing or those who love living history or photography to find ways to collaborate with the community. So that is thehistorycorner.org and the History Corner blog on Instagram. Great place for contributors and authors to start their historical content creation journey. That is thehistorycorner.org or the History Corner blog on Instagram. If you enjoy the sound of my voice, and I really hope you do because you are listening to the Historians Magazine podcast, I think you'll really enjoy the History of Jackson podcast. The History of Jackson podcast brings up-to-date historical research to you from historians, authors and researchers in an accessible and digestible way that strips away the academic jargon that none of us understand and focuses on the history at the root of the episode. So if that's something that appeals to you and you want to learn more about up-to-date historical research, head to The History of Jackson Podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. That is The History of Jackson Podcast on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. So now on to our listener and fan question. So firstly, we've got Kelsey. Kelsey is one of the team members at The Historian's Magazine. And Kelsey asks, so what's the best bit of history you've come across? That can be in terms of your old school lessons, bits of history that you've watched or listened to or even researched. So I think 
generically the best bit of history I've ever kind of researched myself or come across was the ruse. Um, I discovered this when I was at university in my second year under the tutorage of Dr. Monica White. She is one of the most forefounding research experts in this field. And I was very lucky to be studying under her in such an incredible topic that I'd never heard about before. But I think one of the main things that really drew my attention about the Rus is how little we know about them from their own sources and how much we know about them from other sources, whether they be Byzantine or Arabic. And one of the most um, reliable, but also interesting sources we have from the Arabs is from Ibn Fadlan. And he talks about the Rus um, being of Swedish origin, but also their burial rites, how they do their day-to-day -day lives, how they, how they survived, how they came to be. And that is something that we would never have known, like some of these very basic things which we think intrinsic to us in society today, how we bury our loved ones, how we go about our day-to-day -day lives, which wouldn't have been written down by the Rus, but were documented by a different culture. And if you actually want to know more about that, um, one of our writers at the magazine actually wrote, a mag wrote an article called When Arab Meant Rus, Decoding the 10th Century Rus Vikings Through a Muslim Lens by Luke Daly. And he does a really wonderful job and it's a really great introduction to the Rus if you did want to hear any more about them. Yeah, that's a really nice link as well to Luke's article. I think, you know, the Rus are an incredibly interesting part of history that I'm only just starting to dive into now. So I think that's a great answer. Now, actually, coincidentally, Luke has also asked us a question. Luke from the Daily Medieval Podcast uh, has asked a question in terms of why do you do what you do? So as a historian, why do you do what you do? That's so funny because that links back to the last question as well. So we have a bit of a circular nature going on. The reason why I'm so involved and want to be writing the Rus history um, is because not many people know about the Rus. They know about modern Russian history, they know about the Cold War, and they know about Russians in, Russia's involvement in World War II, but, and maybe the Romanovs and the Tsars in imperialism, but not really much is known prior to that. And the Rus has got such a diverse history that is not just Russian history, it's also Ukrainian history and um, Belarusian history. But the Rus and its links to the Byzantine Empire and its interaction with other empires at the time incorporates so much more than just Russia and it introduces so many more um, themes and motifs that we can track and see to today. Um, so I think it's a really wonderful way of getting people involved in a history that's not not many people know about. And I, I I love the point of trying to make history relevant today because a lot of, like you just said, a lot of the Rus history is incredibly relevant to today uh, and what's going on. Now we have our final question. And that's from Rosie from uh, History of Rosie on Instagram, also the founder of the magazine, and our editor-in-chief. And Rosie asks, how can I get my work to stand out? Now, obviously, as an author, you have had tremendous success in getting your, your work seen and 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 getting it to stand out so what what tips have you got 
choose a topic you love. I cannot stress that enough. If you want to make something that is engaging to an audience, you have to be engaged with it yourself. Um, and that also goes for if you're not engaged with it and you're not understanding what you're writing, the audience is not going to understand what you have said and the point that is coming across. So I would definitely make sure that whether it be a niche that has already been well documented or a niche that has very little um, discourse around it, whatever it is, as long as you enjoy it and you are you are in love with the subject, your work will stand out if you give it the time of day that a passion requires. No, I, I, I totally agree with all of that, really. Sitting there as one of the commissioning editors in the magazine, you can quite clearly tell when someone loves the subject that they're they're wanting to write about, and they are usually the ones that are green-lighted. Uh, but I will, will also implore anyone who wants to have their articles to stand out to go and check out the masterclasses on the, the magazine's uh, YouTube, because they do really offer some tips on how to get your word to stand out. Now, if you would like to ask any questions to our future guests on the podcast, do submit the questions to us via Instagram or email us some questions because we will pick them up and they will get read out and asked to our guests in this upcoming series. So thank you for coming on today, Abby. I've really, really enjoyed talking to you about the evolution of F1 and some of these fun questions that we've had. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to drop anything, social media and any, any latest work and upcoming work that you have so that our listeners can go and check them out and check you out. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This is my first time on a podcast and I was really nervous before and you've made me feel so at home um streamlined entire experience so thank you so much for having me and the historians magazine for giving me a platform where my work is being published um because of the magazine i was able to get a publishing contract of which my upcoming work which will be released in 2024 is about um the regent queen of the Rus, princess olga um which is a challenging um endeavor that i'm going on but I love it so much and I would not be doing it if I did not have that passion for it. Um, and I'm really excited for everyone to see that and for it to come out. Um, but yeah, if you want to hear more from me, um, my personal Instagram is abbywills underscore on Instagram. You can find me on LinkedIn at Abigail Rebecca Williams. And yeah, if you want to read more of my work, um, be subscribed to the Historians Magazine and see what comes into the following months. And Abby has written some great pieces for the magazine. So I don't think you guys are going to be missing out on, on some. I do think you guys are going to be missing out on some great history if you don't subscribe and you don't have a read of it. So thank you very much for listening, guys. If you do enjoy the content that we make, be that the podcast or the magazine, consider heading to thehistoriansmagazine.com to become a member of the magazine. So thank you very much for listening. And I will see you all in our next episode.